Good to see you. My name's Brad. I'm happy to be with you this morning. Um, how many of you have ever gotten awkward invitations to parties and you don't know whether or not you're going to accept it or not? This is a Seattle thing, okay? It's not. It's an everywhere thing. Yeah, it's, it's the perpetual let's do coffee. Have uh, you ever had that? Hey, we should get together and grab coffee, get a drink. Oh, yeah, sure, great. And then four months go by and you see the person again. Hey, we should get together and yeah, yeah, it'd be great. And then another four months go by and you forget the person's name and, and then you're off the hook, right? No. Well, this parable comes at an at a interesting setting. And oftentimes settings for parables uh, will help you understand what the parables or what's going on in the parable and particularly why Jesus told it. This one comes, if you go back in Luke, if you have your Bible still out, you go back to the beginning of the chapter, this one comes at a dinner table. Jesus is talking about a dinner party at a dinner party. And he was invited there by a group of Pharisees. He, they said, come dinner. Uh, the Pharisees were, some of them were curious about Jesus. Some of them had ulterior motives. And probably at this place, there were both. Uh, there were those who were generally curious, and there were those who wanted to trap Jesus. And so in the beginning of Luke 14, uh, in, the, in the first verse, you see that he's invited to a Sabbath dinner, which is an important detail. When you're looking at the scripture, you want to know who, what, where, when, why, and, and what's all going on. And so who's there? Jesus, Pharisees. Where are they? They're at a Sabbath dinner. This is a big deal. And so it's the Sabbath day. They're eating dinner together. A guest, uh, as you read through the story, I'm just going to breeze through it, a guest was invited to the dinner party. You don't get into some of these parties, especially this one, without the host knowing you're there. It, it happened before with Simon, uh, another Pharisee. They had a dinner out in the open, and, and a woman walked in. That wasn't a Sabbath dinner. This was a, this was a different one. This would have been an invite-only type thing. And so Jesus is there, and there's a, a person who got invited, and the sole intention, they say, was so that they would test Jesus with what's going to happen with this man. This guy that they invited off the street had an abnormal swelling to his body. Uh, and and it, it, it's all it says is parts of his body swelled up. There are doctors and scholars who look at this and say, most likely this man was suffering from a condition called dropsy, uh, where you have inflammation and swelling in different parts of your body, and it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it doesn't look great. And so they invited him into this party. You can Google what dropsy is later. WebMD has a perfect description of it. And then if you dig deep enough on WebMD, you'll probably think you have it. Because that's how WebMD works. Okay? And so then you can contact your doctor and, and go from there. I'm a hypochondriac. I, something happens to me. I have the worst condition, and it's really just allergies. But that, that's me, so I thought I had dropsy for a few minutes this week. But... The, the Pharisees wanted to see what Jesus would do in this situation. They wanted to test him. Keeping the Sabbath day for the Pharisees was like the most important law. Uh, they, they were very focused on the 613 laws, and they had this belief that if all the, Jewish, the good Jews, believing Jewish people in the world of that day would keep the Sabbath, the kingdom of God would be ushered in, and the, the Messiah would come, and that would be done. So they can work in order to get the Sabbath to come. And so they had a question. What is Jesus going to do about this man? What would Jesus do? It was popular way before the wristbands. Okay, so what is Jesus going to do about what's happening? And so in verse 3, uh, they bring this man before Jesus, and Jesus asked the Pharisees, the experts in the law, this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
See, they thought the Sabbath day, you couldn't work. In fact, we've talked about this before. Spitting on the ground would be considered work because what if there's a seed underneath your saliva when it hits the ground and it begins to germinate? Therefore, you are farming. You are working. And so they had some pretty intense laws. But Jesus says, is it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? And who's he asking? He's asking these experts in the law. They should know the answer to this. When is it right to do wrong is the basic question that Jesus is asking. When's it right to not do anything? In other words, if, in other, your view on what's lawful is getting in the way of what is right. However, when Jesus asked this question in, in, in verse 3, it's crickets. They didn't want to answer it. And so Jesus, being Jesus, likes to poke the bear a little bit more. And in verse 5, then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And then in verse 6, they had nothing to say. This is me when I get in trouble and Carrie and I are having a talk. I don't have anything to say at the moment, right? So they just go quiet. They know if they say anything, they're going to incriminate themselves even further. They don't talk. And so the passage continues, and Jesus talks about planning parties and where you're going to sit and assuming your prominence. And, and he says, you, you want to be humble. Don't just invite your friends to the party who are going to give you the attention. Invite the people who don't like you. Then you're going to see your true status. And then he says, uh, and when you sit down at the table, don't assume the head of the table. Sit at the back of the table. Allow the host to elevate you. And, and so the last will be first, this kind of theme. And so Jesus is looking for the answer to his question. And at least for the Pharisees, the experts in the law, they were stumped. They don't have the answer. Meanwhile, Jesus is waiting for this, for this answer. This man's still there, and they have nothing. They're, Jesus has called their bluff. Uh, if it's gambling terms, Jesus has the full house in front of them, and they have a pair of twos, and nothing's on the board that's going to help anybody. And he says, call it. What do you have? And how many of us tend to clam up in awkward situations? Yeah, a few of you? Maybe this is awkward, me asking you questions from here? Yeah? I love them. I like to create awkward situations. And then I sit back and watch people get weird. Uh, some people who I've done that to now are going, yeah, you do that. I do. And so Jesus is in this awkward situation. And when you're in an awkward situation, what do you try to do? Change the subject? Walk? Leave the room? Uh, if there's an open mic in the room, some people can't stand open mic and people talking out of, you know, not rehearsed, so they'll, they'll leave until the open mic section's done or, or they'll twiddle on their phone or do something. Uh, but awkward situations come. The best thing that some people do is change the subject. Think of a mealtime, like around the holidays, and someone decides to bring up politics. And you go, ugh. How about, how about the Seahawks? Yay! I, I'll never say that. Maybe you will. Uh, how about, what's going on with this? What about the weather? It's been great. Talk about something else. It's awkward. But Jesus holds it. The Pharisees want to change the subject. And so one Pharisee wants to talk about something hopefully they can all agree on. And this is where the parable begins, or the section we'll be talking about. In verse 15, he says, When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he got awkward, and said, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. This is hopefully someone, something that everyone in the room could agree with. The Jewish people believe this. He's quoting from a verse in Isaiah 25. 
when it, it describes the, the messianic feast that's going to happen. A great banquet where death will be gone, tears wiped away, and there'll be glorious salvation. This is what they're looking forward to. It's repeated again in Revelation 21, and it's the same kind of thing. Like, when everything is made right and we're sitting with the Messiah, it's going to be a great day. And then the crowd, it's certainly to be a crowd pleaser. They would have uh, answered with uh, either like an amen or, or I'll drink to that is what we'll answer with. But they would have said this, oh, that we might keep the law precisely so that when that great day comes, we will be counted worthy to sit, at the, sit with the Messiah and all the true believers at his banquet. They would have said this. This is the right response to this. This is them looking forward to that time. Does Jesus say this? No. He doesn't take the bait. Instead, he responds with this parable. We'll go through it slowly again, and then at the end, there'll be a couple ways that we could take this. Okay? Jesus replied, instead of saying, oh, that we might keep the law precisely, which is what they were trying to test Jesus with, oh, that we might do the right things, or what we say the right things are, in order to have what we can do, what we can get. Oh, that we might hold on to our rules and regulations. And then a certain man, Jesus says, was preparing a great banquet and was invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent the servant to tell those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. Party invitations went a lot like this back then. They would say, on this date, kind of like what we do, we, you get, there's a wedding, you get to save the date. Hey, we're getting married, cool, I'm saving that date. And then for some reason, we send a second invitation, right? Uh, okay, and this is the time and the place where everything's going to happen. This is essentially what would go, what would happen. They, this was the save the date. The save the date card went out. Messiah's coming. 700 years ago, this date went out. The Messiah is coming. Don't miss it. Get ready. This was the RSVP. And then God gave them the law. This is how we're going to prepare for this. The law was meant to make your need known that you need a savior. And so when the, when the invitation went out, shoot, back in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, there's someone coming. Watch for it. Then Moses has the law in the, in the, in the desert. This is pointing to somebody else. The prophets spoke. Daniel even gave a time period when this is going to happen. The Messiah is coming. There's the save the date. Okay? Now... They're at the wedding, okay? So that's the first thing. And then what do we do when you go to weddings now? You go, the ceremony happens, and then there's that awkward cocktail hour, which is always strange. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard you try if you're planning weddings, that, that, that section's always going to be awkward. And then someone comes out and says, dinner's ready, find your place, have a seat. The party's about to begin. Or dinner is being served, come on in. And the expected guests would then follow the orders and go in. So here's what happened. The save the date went out. Now the Messiah is here. Jesus is with them. The, the maitre d' of the party says, dinner's ready. Find your seat at the table. And the expected thing, if you go to weddings now, the expected thing is you'll mosey into that section of the venue and you'll sit down and enjoy the feast, right? What would happen if you're at a wedding and that happens and they say, hey, dinner's ready, and then half the people leave? That's just not good, right? They've RSVP'd. The dinner's prepared. You, you can't uninvite. The dinner's paid for also. And now they're going to leave. And so here, that's exactly what happens in verse 18. But they all 
began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Uh, this is a, a pretty offensive thing to say to somebody who's planning a party. Yesterday, these people pledged themselves to attend, and after the food is prepared, the seating charts are made, they're asked for an excuse. And, and we can look at this and go, well, that makes sense, though. He bought a house, and he wants to go see it. However, that didn't happen back in those days, and it rarely happens here. Farmland in those days were not bought without thorough inspection. They wanted to know what the drainage was like. It rained sometimes there. And they wanted to know if the, if the water would pool up in certain spots. They wanted to know the history of the field, what has gained fruit, what hasn't gained fruit, what's worked, what hasn't. Uh, they want to know how the sun hits it in the fall. They want to know how hot it gets in the winter. Are there dead trees on it that they need to dig up roots? Because that takes forever. They wanted to know all this, and so they would examine it. The process would take months, even years, to close the sale. If this were a legit thing, the response would have been like this. My dear friend, you know, you know I've been negotiating over this piece of ground for a very long time. And just an hour ago, the, unexpectedly, the, uh, the owner told me that we have to settle tonight and I have to sign the papers tonight. I'm sorry I cannot come, especially without, without warning. Uh, please, I'm, sure you're un I'm sure you'll understand. But is that what the person says? No. I just bought this land and now I can't come. You bought land sight unseen, which is a no-no in those days. And now he can't come. Do you see how this might be a little bit offensive to the guests or to the party hosts? Yeah. You're making something up. It doesn't work that way. Now, there's a second guest. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Uh, the second, this, this excuse is even more absurd. Every farmer who's worth their, their salt in those days, no, you don't buy odd numbers of oxen. You don't do that. It's like buying three tires. It doesn't work well. You're going to have one that they want to make sure that when you buy the oxen, they can work well together. They can walk together. They, they rest at the same time. They get tired at the same time. You look at oxen very carefully. And if you, you bought them in even numbers, five, an odd number, it doesn't make any sense. It's like buying one AA battery and changing your remote. It takes two and putting one in there, although we've all done that, right? You put one in there instead of both of them because you can only find one and you're tired of standing up. This excuse is insulting and it's absurd. Okay, but did you see if there's a pattern in these excuses? Sir, I have this, therefore I cannot come. Please excuse me. The last one doesn't follow this. The, another says, I just got married. I can't come. <laughs> we chuckle like, yeah, that's funny. Uh, in those days, whoa, that's, this isn't funny. This is rude. Everyone knows what goes on when you get married. But according to the ancient Middle Eastern codes, you don't talk about what happens in the bedroom. It's assumed, but you don't speak about it. And so the fact that this man is, is talking about this in a way, that's what he's saying. We got married. We got married stuff to do. I can't make it. Sorry. Oh, you don't. That's not chivalrous. That's not honoring. You don't have bedroom talk. And according to the rabbi, this is not discussed at this time. And so this last excuse is, even, is the worst, even though it's the shortest. And he doesn't ask for an excuse. They just say, I can't make it. Okay, so you have three invitations. 
three rejections, each of them ascending in offense when it comes back to Jesus or comes back to the host. And so the servant came back in verse 21 and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The expected response from the master is some sort of retaliation, and there should have been, could have been some. He could have sent the messengers to the streets and said, look how this person was offensive in the code of hospitality. Look how this person lies and says something about land or is foolish and says something about buying oxen in odd numbers. Look at the codes they're breaking. And this person is being downright dirty in his response. Look at this. Look how offensive they are. He could have said, this is what I'm, these are people are now my enemies, and I will take action accordingly. This is what could have been said. In that day, the anger would have been justified, but did you see what the master does? He has the anger, and he transforms it into something else. You have anger, and instead of staying mad and having retribution or retaliation or revenge, the anger is transformed into grace. Did you see who was invited instead? It wasn't the wealthy landowners. It wasn't the farmers. It wasn't the people who were getting married. Who's brought in? The people who didn't deserve it. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. People like this don't get invited to the party. The anger is transformed into grace. It didn't, didn't stay angry and shut everyone out. Instead, it says, well, you don't, you don't want this. Maybe these people will. I have this amazing meal. You don't want it. They will. It's like if I had a, uh, a dinner party. I'm trying to think of chefs that everyone would like, and I, and I, order, and I somehow got a hold of Bobby Filet, Gordon Ramsay, Tom Douglas, and Tom Colicchio. Okay? Do we know those people? Watch Top Chef? All right. And I somehow got all of them to come and say, we're cooking dinner. And I invited all of you. And you're like, yes. Even the vegans would be like, they can make something. Maybe. (laughs) And so they come in and they're like, okay, we're going to come make. And they make this beautiful meal and they lay it out. And they're standing behind it. And somehow these chefs all got along at the same time. And they put together this awesome meal. And I call you and say, you're not going to believe it. It's here. Come over. Let's eat. And you're like, uh, I want a Happy Meal. Are you kidding? You're going to choose a McDonald's Happy Meal? And Happy Meals come in handy with little kids, so I'm not totally dogging them. And they're delicious. But you're going to choose a Happy Meal in a box in the car by yourself as opposed to an amazing dinner party with James Beard award-winning chef. This is what they're choosing. So if you're not going to take the meal here, enjoy your Happy Meal. I'm going to find some people who maybe don't understand how good this is, and they're going to enjoy it. He goes and finds people who don't necessarily belong at this party. And then the servant comes back, and there's still some empty seats. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. The servant returns and there's still a lot of space. There's a key word in here that says compel. Compel them to come in. Now this word 
has been abused in the past. The idea of compelling people was used during the Spanish Inquisitions and some of the early church history to force people to agree with your theological standpoints. Uh, it's been abused. It was wrong when they did that. Uh, but the word compelling there isn't a forcing somebody to do something. That's not what was intended to happen. The word compel is more like this. You're not going to believe this meal. It is so good. And you have to come. Compel them because the people on the roads and on the country lanes would have never been invited to this. They would think it was some kind of trap. Come on, we're not going to hurt you. This is legit. You're not going to have to pay for it. I'm not forcing you to come. I'm painting a better picture of what it could be like if you do enjoy this. You're going to miss out if you don't come in. I'm compelling you on how good this is, not how bad you are. Do you see the difference? I Look at how good this meal is going to be. You don't want to miss it. Let me reassure you that the invitation is for real. It's extended to you. You don't have to do anything to have it. The meal is prepared. And they would respond, look, this is impossible. I, you can't be serious. I can't come to this. And the servant would respond, yes, you can. Here's the, here's the invite. Here's the gate code. Here's the password. Here's the secret knock if it's a speakeasy. This is everything you need to know. And it's going to be good. It is not a trap. Tell the people, the master says, tell them I'm serious about this. Do what you have to do to get them there. And then the last phrase happens and Jesus ends the parable with this statement. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now something strange happens here. In the original text, when the servant is talking to the, to the master, the yous are, are plural. He's saying, go and tell them. This is, Jesus is in, incorporating a bunch of people into the, the, the story. When it gets to here, Jesus is done with the parable, and now he's talking to the people sitting at the table around them. I'll tell you here, you're not going to make it to my banquet. You've missed it. Why? They should have known that the Messiah is coming. They should have been the ones who are looking for it. And now that Jesus is sitting in their midst, Isaiah 25 is being fulfilled in their midst. They're not wanting any part of it. They're more concerned about what Jesus is going to do about the person who is sick with dropsy than they are about Jesus himself. The key phrase that happens here is this took place on the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath for? Resting. On the seventh day in creation, God rested and said, you're going to want to do the same thing because I've created you in my image. And on the seventh day, we stop working. This is Brad's translation. On the seventh day, we stop working and we rest in the fact that we have a big God who can do big things and doesn't always need our help. We need to take a break. The Sabbath day represented rest. And there are various places inside Scripture that also represent rest. And there's times of back in the Exodus where they have a chance to go next to the promised land. Rest was the promised land. This is what they were looking forward to. And they miss it. It's in Numbers. Uh, uh, the, the, they, numbers 13, 14, I think. I'm totally off my notes. I have no idea where it is. But... Numbers 13, they're walking through the land. They've just been freed from Egypt. 
working every day, building bricks. They're walking in the desert. They get to where they're, one of the places where they're supposed to be, and Moses says, I'm going to send 12 spies out. And we're going to go look at the land. And they go look at the land, and they come back, and we know the story. 12 men went to spy. 10 were bad, 2 were good. They come back, and they say, we can't take this land, this promised land that's for us. We can't take it, even though it's full of milk and honey, meaning it's, it's produced so much, it's got so much potential, it's got everything that we need. We can't, we can't take it. Why? Because there's other people there. There's giants in the land. They have big armies. We can't take it. And what happens is they miss out on the rest that God wants them to experience. And so God gets upset, rightfully so. Look, I've, I've prepared this promised land for you. It's taken a long time. The, the sins of the Amalekites is why they were in Egypt. And 400 years later, they're sitting on the precipice to move into what God has for them. And they're afraid. No, we can't take it. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, yeah, we can. But the ten spies outruled the two spies, and they missed it. And so God tells them in Numbers 14, he says, look, all of you who said we can't go into the promised land, guess what? You're not going to go into the promised land. You're, you're not invited anymore. So you're going to wander out in the desert until this generation is gone, except for the two that said they could make it. They got right up to the end of it, edge of it. They were invited. They even saw how good it was. And they said, uh, I'm better. I think we're better out here walking around the desert. One scholar says that they were so afraid of, of, of leaving the security of their camp in the desert and trying to get something new that their fear kept them complacent. That's scary because I don't know what's going to happen over there. I don't want to be here, but my familiarity is going to breathe, going to breathe life into my fears, and I'm going to be so scared to move from this terrible situation into a better situation. So my fears keep me planted where I'm not supposed to be in the first place. The fear of change. Then they said, we're better off in Egypt. We're better off captive. We're better off here rather than experiencing what God has. And they missed it. This parable can be looked at through a couple ways, and that's one of the ways you and I are invited to a life with Christ. And the life with Christ is an invitation after invitation after invitation, not to stay where you are or how you came to Christ, but to progress in your relationship with Christ because there's always something more. Uh, one author says, Jesus loves you just the way you are. He found you just the way you are. And all of the filth or whatever he found you in, just the way you are, never wants you to stay there. There's an invitation to come. Oftentimes we don't take the invitation because we're afraid to change anything in our lives because we're afraid. Well, if I say yes to Jesus, that means, that means I have to look at my relationships a lot differently. Yep, you do. If I say yes to Jesus and keep following him, I'm going to have to change my views on some things. Yeah, you would. If I say yes to Jesus, there might be some things I have to give up some addictions that I need to address. Yep, 
Say, yeah, you will. Well, if I come to Jesus or if I say yes to Jesus even more, the predictability that I have in my life with the people I hang out with, with the way I think, with the way I talk, with the, what I listen to, what I fill my brain with, that's going to have to change. The predictability is not going to be predictable anymore. I'm going to have to step into a promised land, and there's going to be some scary things within me that I have to address. Absolutely. And that keeps you away. But the invitation that Jesus has is, look, the invitation is here. Look how good this is. You're going to have to say no to some things in order to say yes to what Jesus has for you. Will it be hard? Uh Uh-huh. Will it be worth it? Absolutely. Uh, when, uh, when I was younger and dumber, uh, we, someone challenged me to run a marathon, which was the dumbest decision I ever did, but I did it multiple times. And so they said, hey, you should do this. And I was like, it's going to be so hard. And it was. It was awful. If you have any ideas on running a marathon, let me talk you out of it. Some of you do those, and that's great, but if, you, if you're on the fence, I'll, I'll fix you. But... Uh, and so I said, they said, yeah, it, but it'll be, it'll be worth it. And so you go through the four months of training, and it takes up all of your free time. I missed the whole office phenomenon when that was on TV because I was running stupid miles during the, when it was on, and we didn't have DVR. And so someone will quote the office, and I go, yeah, I missed it. I was running. And so I felt like Forrest Gump, just always running. And so then, then uh, they said, but it'll be worth it. Your training will be worth it if you say so. And then the big day comes, the race comes, the excitement's there. You're like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Mile 17 comes by, and I can't feel my toes. I'm bleeding in places I never thought I would be able to bleed. Uh, and and I'm, still, I'm still running. And I get to the end of it, and they put this metal around my neck, and they hand me a Budweiser, which, great. Uh, and then someone said, was it worth it? And I'm looking at the end of what I just ran and went, strangely, yes the hardest thing I've ever done. But it was worth it. Sometimes God's going to call you to go deeper in the relationship with him, which means you're going to have to work a little bit. It's worth it. Don't let your fears hold you back. Uh, another story is when Carrie and I were dating right, uh, right before we got engaged. I was running another marathon and, uh, and I was running with my, my friend Ben. Ben and I have been friends since uh, seventh grade summer camp. And then we were roommates in college, and then we were best, best people and best men in each other's weddings. Uh, ben and I are running, and, and we're turning the corner to finish. And Ben goes, uh, so what, what's going on with you and Carrie? And I, I said, you know, I told him where I was. And he goes, oh, so you're afraid. I went, yeah. I'm afraid to, to ask her to marry me. I'm afraid of this, this commitment that I'm looking at because that's where it's going and it's scaring the tar out of me. I'm running marathons to avoid it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he goes, well, don't let your fear stop you from making the best decision of your life. And he was right. My fear of commitment, my fear of the hard work of a relationship was almost going to keep me from one of the best decisions I've ever made. Your fears hold you back. And so here you have Jesus talking to a group of people who are so set in their ways about their laws, so set in their ways about this is what we are all about. We trust in 
in our 613 interpretations of the law. We trust in this, and we're missing it. It's the Sabbath day. The person, the object of the Sabbath is sitting at their table. Sabbath things are happening all around them. This dude just got healed of dropsy, and you want to talk to me about a rule saying that that was bad rather than celebrate the fact that this person is cured. You want to talk to me about how he was cured. You're missing the point. This is what you've been looked at. This is what you've been looking for. This is what you've been studying for 700 years. And you want to talk about the details of the law. And you want to quote Isaiah 25 back at me saying, this is uh, what a great day it's going to be. And Jesus is saying, what a great day it is. The Messiah feast is right here. And you're busy looking at other stupid things and you're missing it. And because you're missing it, you're not even going to make it to the banquet party. You're, invi- you're not invited. And instead... As you fold through scriptures, who is invited? The outsiders. In this case, Gentiles. In this case, people who would never make it to the party themselves. The people who are considered unclean are the ones invited in. And they're the ones that get to experience uh, the transforming taste of Jesus' banquet. They get to experience. Why? Because they're hungry for it more than anything. The other people are simply okay enough to sit there and eat happy meals when there's a beautiful meal. They're not hungry to eat it. The people who are outsiders are hungry enough to say yes. The question it asks for us, one of the questions, there's another one we'll get to in a second, is are you hungry for more or are you scared and eating junk food in order to get by and you're missing the main course of what Jesus has for you? Are you hungry to keep diving into what Jesus has? Or are your fears going to keep you away? The other section I want to look at here is when you you look at that word compel, compel them to come in. You and I can also be the servants in the relationship. Yes, we can be the people refusing Jesus' invitation, keeping him at bay, but we're also the servants here. What does it look like for us to compel people to experience Christ? What does your life look like to be compelling for people to go, what do they have that I'm missing? We've tasted Jesus, hopefully. You've tasted and saw that he was good. That's what Psalm says. We've experienced his goodness, his grace, the love, the community. How are we using our lives to compel people to come in to share what we have? Are you doing so? There's a, another story, and it shows up later in Numbers and part of Deuteronomy, where the, there's three tribes. Joshua has led the people into the promised land. They're settling it. He's assigning, here, you go here. Joshua was one of the spies. He gets to make it in the promised land. And then Caleb, the other spy, says, I want the hard country. Caleb's the best. I want, I, I'm looking for a fight. He's 80 years old, and he says, I've still got blood in, going through my veins. Give me the hardest country because it'll be the best country. And he says, I want that. So Joshua's like, yeah, you take this. The tribe of Judah goes here. The tribe of this person goes here, there. Everyone gets their land. There's three tribes who decide they're not going to go in. The tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half a tribe of Manasseh. 
They say, you know what? Um, we're good out here. In fact, there's the Jordan River. We're going to stay on the other side of the river. We're going to stay to the east side of the river. And Moses looks at him and goes, this is back when they decided this. And Moses says, you really have no idea what you're deciding. And Moses tries to compel them. And he decides to say, look how good it is over here. You have protection from the other nine tribes. You have all of this over here. You have the land. But you're deciding to say that. So Moses is doing his best to compel compel them. Move into the land. Don't miss this. Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 3 and 4. And it says they got so close and they missed it. Don't miss it. Sometimes we can make the story look so good to somebody, they're still going to miss it. They're going to get right up to the edge of saying yes to Jesus, and then they're going to say, I'm good out here. And Moses still tries to compel them. Sometimes we stop our compelling other people to come in because they said no, but Moses keeps trying and keeps trying, and even until he's dead, he's still trying. And they still refuse. But Moses doesn't take no for the answer. Compel them to come in. I'm sure a few of us know of somebody who we've talked to them about Jesus several times. We've tried to compel them with how good Jesus is. We've told them that they've been missing. We've told them that they're, they're living on the outskirts and they, 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 really, they really ought to say yes. It's worth it. It's difficult. It's worth it. What do we do? Keep compelling Keep compelling. Paint a bigger, better picture of Jesus. It doesn't stop. The compelling, the invitation is still there for them to be a part of this party. Compel them to come in. One time I was at a, I was at a wedding, and um, I'm not the biggest of dancers at weddings, if you could imagine. And uh, I'm standing on the edge, and everyone's dancing in the, in the, in the whatever it's called, dance floor. And I'm standing on the edge, and I'm, I'm with my friend, and I'm, you know, the, I don't know what it's called, the white man's way. And so, but I'm doing it, and I'm, I'm having a great time. I'm, I'm drinking whatever it was handed to me, and I, yeah, great. But I'm looking out into the dance floor, and all these people are doing some kind of mamba line. I don't know. It looks silly. But they're having a great time, and I'm like, cool. You just keep doing that. And then the song changes, and I, I'm watching Carrie, and, and she's dancing, and her dancing involves jumping. And so she's, she's dancing, and she's having a good time with her friends, and then she looks at me and see, sees me standing out there, and she does this. And I dodge it. And then uh, she looks at me and gives me the look. I'm like, ah, oh, crap, I got to go. And she throws the line out again, and I take it, and she reels me in, and I'm doing this, you know, because you have to. And then I get in there, and it's a blast. I don't know how to dance. I can't dance. But it was so much fun. Why? Because I'm in the middle of it all. I'm where it was, I was intended to be. I don't know what I look like. I, I stopped caring at some point. But I accepted the invitation. The compelling, casting the net, reeling me in, made it worth it. Some of us are standing on the sidelines. Some of us need to move into the dance floor. Dance around a little bit. Some of us are standing in the middle and we see people outside who are just okay standing on the edge. We gotta reel them in. 
Come on in. Who cares if you can't dance? None of us can either. But it's fun, and it's worth it. Where do you find yourself today? Is there some people around your life that need some compelling? They need to be reeled in? Is that person you? You need to be reeled in? Brought back into the middle? But it might be awkward. Yeah, it is. It's fun, though. Don't miss the invitation. Pray with me. Father, we thank you uh, that even though we're broken, even though we're not comfortable, even though we can think of a thousand reasons why we shouldn't, you still invite us. And you say, come. Even when we're not ready, you say, come anyways. The invitation's here. Don't miss it. It's right in front of you. Don't miss the good time. And Spirit, would you begin to reveal places in our hearts, maybe where we've walled off? We're not accepting invitations anymore. May you point that out to us today. Say, this is time for you to come. tired, broken, ashamed, come. Scared, insecure, come. May we accept your invitation. May we put down the lame excuses that we might have. And come and enjoy. The table's ready. It's been set. It's on us now. In Jesus' name we pray.